We all think about what we eat. We plan our meals or count carbs or do any number of other things when it comes to what we put in our bodies. But do you ever think about the flavor of what you consume? Sure you do. What we eat or drink either tastes good or it doesn't. In fact, taste is the number one consideration in what we consume. There's more to it than just like or dislike. And there's even a whole industry dedicated to it. Flavor is memory. Flavor is feeling. Flavor is science. Flavor is art. Flavor is McCormick Flavor Solutions. I'm Corey Doucette, and welcome to our Flavor University podcast, where we explore the science, artistry, and industry behind flavor. We talk in the abstract on our podcast about how flavors are created. I mention art and feelings in our opening, reminding our listeners that flavor is incredibly subjective. Today, we're going to talk more about the science in flavor. What does it take to make a flavor? What are the process for making flavor? And what instruments are, pardon the pun, instrumental in creating flavor? I'll be talking with a newcomer to our podcast, Principal Analytical Chemist Adam O'Leary. Hi, Adam. Welcome to the show. Hi, Corey. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Adam, we're going to start off like we always do. Please introduce yourself, tell us what you do, and tell us about your journey to McCormick Fauna. So my name is Adam O'Leary. I'm a principal analytical chemist at McCormick Fauna, and I lead our analytical services team. So prior to my current role, I obtained my bachelor's and my master's degree in chemistry with a focus in analytical chemistry from Illinois State University. Really, my subjection to the flavor industry from a collegiate perspective was extremely limited. Generally, what we always talked about or at least knew of was applications of analytical chemistry in the pharmaceutical industry, in toxicology, and then what I focused on, at least in graduate school, more forensics applications. What I didn't know at that time, however, is that even though analytical instrumentation is used in all of these different areas, it has use in the flavor chemistry, in the flavor and fragrance industry as well. And even though I was looking at different molecules or targeting different molecules, the instrumentation was relatively the same for each area. So let's, let's get into it. Let's talk about analytical chemistry. This sounds like the type of course in college or high school that I would kind of steer away from, but what is analytical chemistry? So analytical chemistry is one of the subdisciplines of chemistry. Probably the one that people are the most familiar with is going to be organic chemistry. So, you know, your mad scientist, as it's portrayed in TV and movies, really synthesizing chemicals. And analytical is, is very much so different than that. Really what we're concerned with is developing workflows, methods, really to answer a variety of different questions. Those questions could be, you know, what is the chemical makeup of an unknown sample, as well as at what quantities of particular chemicals are in an unknown sample. So typically to uh, answer these questions, we can rely on wet chemistry techniques. Some that come to mind are going to be pH measurement, um, specifically for acidity, titrations. So if you wanted to quantitate like sodium chloride in a, a sample, you could do that with a titration. But Generally, what we're doing at Fona for the most part is using specialty instrumentation, and that's a very broad category. Spectrophotometers, commonly utilized within the industry, as well as gas chromatographs, liquid chromatographs, and, and even mass spectrometers. What I'm hearing is you're kind of figuring out the why, the what steps can I repeat to make these 
procedures happen? Or what procedures does everybody do to get to the right answer? Correct. Yeah. Now, let's apply that. You sort of touched on this. Let's apply that to how it's being used in the flavor industry. How are we using these measures or this measurement style or this chemistry in the flavor industry as a whole? And then if you want to, if you want to go more specific, please go right into like what we do in the office. Yep, definitely. So I'll start off, um, and this isn't necessarily my group, but it is another area within um, the flavor industry that uses analytical chemistry and probably one of the more important ones, and that's going to be quality, food quality. So quality control chemists are going to be using analytical chemistry to ensure that raw materials that are coming into a facility are safe and free from defect. And furthermore, finished product that uses those raw materials are also going to be safe for shipment out into the general population. Another area that's really new and emerging on that is is really food authenticity. So especially with a lot of the supply chain constraints that COVID had caused, really created, I would say, more observations of food fraud in the industry. And these instruments can be utilized in more of a forensics application to identify is something actually authentic parsley or are they using parsley with some actual filler in it? So ensuring that what a product says on the label is actually what it is. What happens if we do come across something like that? We get a, a shipment of, you know, parsley that isn't a hundred percent parsley. What do we do with it? I think it's first going to be a conversation with whoever the supplier is. From a raw material standpoint, we would reach out to our ingredient supplier and, and really share this information. And that's why we do our due diligence is to ensure that this isn't something that's going to actually go out into the public. Who's catching these kind of things? Is it you guys? Are you the ones that are kind of, you know, testing it before it goes into the product and saying, you know, the chemical makeup of parsley is supposed to be this and it's not? Not so much us. So we actually have a group that's in Carpentras, France, that really specializes in food integrity testing. So all of their methodologies, workflows are really centered on that, really ensuring that it is what it says it is. They're not using some other spice in conjunction with what the label is saying, just to ensure that there isn't going to be any food fraud. For a second there, I really thought that you were going to be like, well, we have a parsley specialist. (laughs) We have a parsley specialist. (laughs) So. In terms of what my team does, really what we're doing is we're supporting research and development, specifically flavor creation, with kind of the general projects that they would work on. And that's either the creation of new flavors from existing products or the duplication of uh, flavors that already exist on the market. So I know you kind of touched on this to start with. Let's talk about the instrumentation that you're using, the electric nose or the, you know, I, I know we have several drives named after, you know, Overmind and and whatnot. But what instrumentation are we using? Where did that start? I mean, obviously, flavor's been around forever, you know, since the beginning of time. What instruments did we start with and how have we moved forward? So we have a variety of different instruments, at least in our laboratory. Probably the one that's going to be used the most is going to be our gas chromatograph. So gas chromatography as a technique has been around for many years. Really, its initial development was in the early 1950s, and it was through a scientific publication by um, two British scientists uh, really detailing the technique that led to its interest by the public as well as its commercialization. So 
Ever since the mid-1950s, you've seen this technique be continually commercialized to where it's, to where it's at today. Those systems at that time really started out as gigantic monstrosities that you put together with any parts that you could find. Um, a lot of this stuff wasn't commercialized at that point. And even when they did, they were in their initial stages. As we progress through the years to where we're at today, we start to see these systems become smaller and smaller in size and going from a point to where they're taking up a whole room to where they're taking up a small footprint on the bench top. So gas chromatography is beneficial for us because chromatography in name is going to mean a separation. Most flavors that we're looking at are incredibly complex, especially if they contain an essential oil. So citrus essential oils especially can have well over 80 different chemicals comprising their um, aromatic nature. And really our goal is to identify each one of those individual chemicals. And chromatography is going to allow us to do that. So how does the chromatography work? Like, what are you looking at to, to suss out these different types of citrus or these different types of ingredients? Yeah. So if we're talking about a straight liquid flavor, uh, really being the, the most simple application, we're going to start by doing any form of sample preparation that we do, we can do just to ensure that it's applicable for a gas chromatograph. The main requirement is that our sample needs to be volatile. So if there are some non-volatiles in our sample, we're not going to be able to see those and they may interfere with us perceiving our actual volatile compounds. So we need to remove those. Once we do our sample preparation, however, we're going to inject our sample. We're going to heat it up in the inlet of the gas chromatograph, cause our sample to go from a liquid into the gas phase. And at this point, we have a gaseous mixture of a variety of different chemicals or aromatic chemicals. Now, an inert gas is then going to flow through our system. This is typically going to be helium, causing our uh, molecules to transition into our column and separate out over, uh, according to their individual characteristics. So generally, our more volatile compounds are going to elute first, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, followed by our, our heavier compounds are going to be a little bit more retained. So I talked about gas chromatography, and that's just really the separation at this point. The detection is another piece of the puzzle. So there's a variety of detectors that we can use. Typically, the one that we're going to rely on the most is going to be a mass spectrometer, just because it can give us the ability to identify unknown compounds. So every time one of those molecules transitions into the mass spectrometer, after they're separated, we're going to get a snapshot of that molecule. That snapshot is going to be characteristic to that molecule. And there's a variety of different databases that are available that we can use to identify it. I got to say, this is incredible. Uh, to break a flavor down to its molecules, I mean, who would have thought that, I mean, obviously you guys would have thought, but out of all the labs or all the lab space that we have, if you've ever taken a tour of the McCormick Fauna facility, the sample lab where Adam resides or his team resides looks the most like a laboratory you would think of in like a scientist movie. You guys have got, you know, computers in every square inch. You've got, you know, your test tubes, your testing stations. It's incredible the amount of equipment that you have. So do you use a lot of that equipment? I mean, obviously you use it for human food. We also dabble or work in pet food and so on. You use those instruments there as well, same ones? 
Yes, definitely. Because one of the biggest advantages of using this instrumentation is it's, it's not us that's going to have to taste it. We have an electronic nose that is a GC-based system, so similar to what I just talked about. And then we also have an electronic tongue that is also a sensor-based system, but it's really only focusing on non-volatile compounds. So those that would interact more with taste. And that's generally the one that's going to be used to supplement sensory. Now, it's not going to be a direct replacement for sensory, but for pet foods, as you would imagine, I think anything is going to be better than actually tasting it yourself. Depends on who you ask. I'm pretty sure everybody has that story of, and they always preface it with, when I was a kid, I tried my dog's, you know, X, uh, when really they just did it last week. I also can remember like that Mel Gibson Lethal Weapon movie. Remember where we had a box of dog bones with him? I was always curious, like, did he use the real deal or did he use the cookies? I, I don't know. You actually bring up a really cool point there, too, about having those not be a substitution kind of for the real thing. Are, are we worried, you know, with, with the rise of like AI and, you know, the writer's strike and so on? Um, are we worried about machines taking over and being able to do this job, you know, maybe not better, but able to do jobs in existence, you know, by themselves? Currently, I would say no. Um, I think presently using or combining analytical, um, the expertise of an analytical chemist with that of a flavor chemist is really how we would address a lot of the projects that we're working on. We can't replace them just using instrumentation by any means. They have a knowledge base that's far more substantial than, than what we're doing. Um, it's their knowledge of regulatory, their knowledge of understanding what our customers' needs are from a flavor perspective. Generally, what we're doing is we are providing our flavor chemists with the composition of what chemicals are present within the flavor system. We're not providing them any regulatory information. If we do have some of that information up front, we could say, hey, utilize these materials for this natural flavor. But Really, they are the ones who are responsible for creating it and commercializing it and ensuring that the regulatory is where it needs to be. Now, 20 years from now, will we get to a point where it directly replaces a flavor chemist? I don't think so. Maybe if you're just talking about duplicating existing flavor systems, but the creative aspect, you can really draw a parallel to an artist in that I don't think you can teach a computer system how to paint or how to have feeling per se. I mean, we can eventually maybe bridge the gap, but flavor chemistry, flavor creation is very much an art as it stands right now. Creating something new is always the key. It's never, reproducing is always easy when doing any kind of art or it sounds like even flavor creation, which as we've discussed is art. Now, let's talk about something that you kind of hinted on earlier, and that's flavor replication. Are you guys capable of walking down the grocery store aisle, picking up a certain product and then replicating the flavor? And if you are capable of doing that, which I think I know the answer to that, how? How are you doing that? So absolutely. Um, that's actually one of the areas I would say that we focus a majority of our time. And it really goes back to my previous comment about some of the negative impacts on the supply chain with COVID, not having access to raw materials, um, not so much for us, but our competitors has led to issues with our customers getting their flavor in a timely manner. And then also our customers having uh, a quality flavor system that they're used to getting. So this has created really the opportunity for us to use 
the workflows that we've developed here at McCormick Fona to rapidly duplicate existing flavor systems. So our customers not having to deal with not being able to address a production run in the upcoming weeks or not having to deal with a difference in flavor profile, one that may negatively impact their customers. So really what we've done here is developed a workflow that's designed really to streamline that whole duplication process and be really data backed from an analytical chemistry standpoint. So we're using gas chromatography, mass spectrometry, really to focus on aroma, breaking it down to its individual aroma chemicals, and then also their raw material source, whether they're individual raw materials or they're materials that are associated with essential oil essence or extract. Realizing that aroma just isn't the only portion of flavor, we also focus on non-volatile compounds that have more of an impact on taste. So sweetener systems, artificial sweeteners, if the system's actually artificial and regulatory, amino acids from a reaction flavor standpoint, really all areas that we focus on. What we want to really have created is an analytical workflow that addresses every aspect of a flavor system and provides our customer with a solution as quickly as possible. And I imagine that these machines are also used for substitution. So when things are hard to get a hold of or don't exist perhaps anymore, you guys are using these machines to recreate. Absolutely. And I think in that related to supply chain, again, not having access to certain raw materials within the supply chain can cause issues, especially for flavors that are already commercialized, already being supplied to our customers. And Fortunately, using analytical instrumentation, we're able to not only identify other sources of that ingredient, but also verify from a sensory perspective in the case of electronic nose or electronic tongue, that it is going to be uh, similar from a sensory perspective. Do you have any examples of that when you've had to fill a gap kind of thing, you know, substance or formula was out? and you needed to find something to, to switch it out with. Absolutely. So there are a variety of different um, fractions of citrus oils, whether it's lemon, lime, orange, tangerine, you name it. And I know at certain points, at least in my time here at McCormick Fona, um, there have been cases where we may not have access to a certain citrus oil at a particular time. And that could be because of supply chain issues with COVID, or it could be related to drought conditions and where they're actually growing um, these citrus fruits. Here nor there, it needs to go into particular formula, our customers expecting it. So really it's, it's our role or our um, responsibility to identify an alternate source. And fortunately, we source many citrus oils. And really what we can do is take that citrus oil that we're looking to reproduce, compare it to a library of citrus oils that we have and we've collected analytical data on and either find one that's very similar and not have to do anything else, or we find one that's similar and then we top note with individual aroma chemicals if the regulatory will allow us to do so. What does that flavor library look like? Is it legitimately, I know we have a small room or something like that that has like just little bottles in it. Is that, is that our flavor library or is it in a, a database somewhere? Is it machine related? 
that is our physical flavor library. From an analytical standpoint, though, ours is primarily just raw data on a computer system. So generally what we're looking to do is take all of our citrus oils, and we have done this, run those, get their aromatic profiles with gas chromatography, mass spectrometry, um, and identify the individual signatures as well as their concentrations within that particular oil. And we essentially have reports for every one of these oils that we can compare to one another or across different profiles, whether it's comparing a single-fold orange to a single-fold lemon. And really the benefit in doing so is, I would say, one of the biggest challenging challenges in matching a particular flavor system, especially if it's citrus-based, is identifying what citrus oil is present. In some cases, it can be relatively easy, but having access to that information, especially when they be maybe using five to 10 different citrus oils, only helps us. We have really the pieces of the puzzle to get us to the complete picture. Um, it's really relying on that information that allows us to get there. In our last podcast, we talked about odd pairings that work. Let's kind of talk about putting odd flavors into things that aren't normally flavored that way. So uh, an example that we have here is fruit cereal of some sort and vodka. So how do, how do we do that? What's going on there? Yeah, so that's really a project that we would describe as being more of an emulation. So it's a system that, a flavor system that already exists on the market. However, we're going to be developing it for a different end application. So there's a variety of different cereals that are on the market. Uh, just to pick one of my favorites, it's going to be like a fruity cereal that I'm sure everybody's accustomed to. That has a very unique profile. Not only is it fruity from an ester perspective, but it also has a citrus aspect to it as well. So we can actually go down the street to the grocery store, get that product, take it back to the laboratory, and really decide what we want to focus on. So focusing on flavor in general, uh, we want to really focus on the aromatics as well as the non-volatiles. So um, gas chromatography, mass spectrometry, especially for unknowns analysis, is going to be critical. So we would prepare our sample, run it with GCMS, and try to identify as many components of that flavor system as possible, relaying that information back to the flavor chemist to develop a foundation formula. Now, they can modify the flavor solubility for the end application. So likely a cereal application is going to use either an oil-based flavor or a dry flavor. Um, if it's going to be an alcohol-based application or beverage, they're going to want to have a water-soluble flavor. So that really goes back to the question before, too, on can we use instrumentation to replace a flavor chemist? And that's information that we can't necessarily provide in terms of solubility, ensuring that materials are actually going to go into solution. Now, furthermore, um, that's just the aromatic portion. Another significant portion can be the non-volatile. So if there's any sourness associated with the cereal, and that could be from organic acids such as citric or malic acid, we would need to use an alternative technique such as high-performance liquid chromatography really on the converse side of gas chromatography to identify those and really summing that information together, both the non-volatile information and the volatile information, we could develop that mock flavor system. I need to take this opportunity right now because I know you're the person to ask this and feel free to crush my dreams if you'd like to. When eating Fruit Loops, 
Are there meant to be different flavors in the Fruit Loops? Or are all they just all the same flavor? It really is dependent on the product. I can't recall for like Fruit Loops specifically, but in some cases, they will each color will correspond to a different flavor. I've also seen cases where regardless of the color of the actual candy, it could be a different or cereal, it could be a different flavor. So it's really dependent on whoever is developing the product, but we could use gas chromatography to determine that. Excellent. Get right on that for me, please. <laughs> Appreciate it. Uh, well, I thank you for the answer on that one because I've been in the debate and I tell you right now, it, I know it's not in my head. It may, like I said, flavor is subjective. So maybe it's the visual of seeing, you know, the different colors, but I, you know, I'm convinced that each one has a different flavor of some sort. We've talked about what analytical chemistry and instrumentation can do to help create flavor. What are some of the challenges that these instrumentation or this chemistry creates for our customers? So I, I would say one of the biggest challenges that we have is that flavor is extremely complex, not just that there are a variety of different chemicals that are approved flavor materials, but the reality that they're utilized at a wide dynamic range of different concentrations. So you can use flavor materials up, up into the actual percentages all the way down to part per trillion, part per billion levels. And it's really those that are at low levels that pose the most issue for us. Instrumentation, especially where it's at today, whether it's gas chromatography, liquid chromatography, especially with mass spectrometry, is, is very sensitive. But there's still a point to where these low concentration or trace molecules can pose a challenge from a development perspective. And this is probably something that I enjoy the most about what I do is that we need to be strategic in tar targeting these. So it's not just what instrumentation that we have available. It's ensuring that our sample preparation is also going to work in tandem with our instrumental analysis technique to ensure that we're going to have the sensitivity to see these molecules. So a great example would be sulfur compounds. So I'm sure everybody's familiar with the smell of uh, natural gas. They actually add an additive to natural gas because it is odorless. So they add methyl mercaptan, smells like rotten eggs, and they added an extremely low concentration just because we as humans are so sensitive to it, we can pick up very small quantities of it and notice it almost immediately. Um, and that's done just for, as a, that's done as a safety mechanism. Now, we utilize these same compounds that are approved for food and flavor use. So examples would be dimethyl sulfide, methyl thiobutyrate, just to name a few uh, or a select few. And these have always posed issues with mass spectrometric detection. So having the efficient sample preparation to be able to identify those, having efficient sample preparation to concentrate those prior to analysis is really going to assure, ensure our ability to see them. You know, I could tell that you deal with this or talk about these chemicals and instrumentation every day. And the reason I can tell that is because you've spouted off all of them without stuttering, without going back, without changing. I mean, you may have had to tweak your answers, but the words always come out exactly the same, which, I, you know, credit to you because I, I can't even say them right now back to you. Uh, so let's wrap this up. Let's get to, you know, the ending of our podcast here, as we always do. 
What are the key takeaways for our listeners? What can we pass on to them as words of wisdom from Adam O'Leary? Absolutely. So I would say key takeaways, the first being that analytical chemistry is utilized in a variety of different industries. So food and flavor industry, we talked about food safety, food authenticity from a quality perspective, extremely important. We transitioned into discussion of its usefulness in research and development, whether it's related to flavor duplication and matching or emulation or just support of flavor creation in general. Even though this instrumentation has progressed and progressed over the years to the point where we can readily break down a flavor system or a natural product such as an apple into its individual flavor components, even though we can do that, we still can't replace the expertise of a flavor chemist. Really, their knowledge of raw materials, regulatory, everything that they have really developed within their toolkit at least at this point. And finally, my favorite part, two random questions that I developed while you were speaking. In our office at McCormick Fona, I've named all of our printers. Do you name any of your instruments? And if so, what are their names? That's an excellent question. And then I'm happy to say that the answer is yes. So generally every instrument has a name um, and it's related to either the brand of the instrument so a very common instrument that we have, its name is, is Agnes. We also have Beverly, Stephen, and Leslie, just to name a few. And when you're talking in just general conversation with your, your team, you refer to them as such, I hope? Absolutely, absolutely. Agnes broke down today. She's not doing so hot. Might have to send her in. To, in well, get co context is key. <laughs> <laughs> All right, last question. I get assigned tickets on a daily basis. I assign them to myself. And within those tickets, it's usually a request to fix something and look at something. And there's always one problem area, one problem machine that always comes back to me all the time. And it drives me crazy. Do you have a problem, child? Do you have a problem machine that, that either gives you information that's not 100% that you've always got to keep an eye on? I wouldn't say that we have a problem child instrument. Generally, a lot of the issues that we experience are just relatively, I think, what what anyone would experience. It could be related to certain maintenance events that need to happen on a certain time schedule. It could be related to actual hardware issues, replacement of syringes, consumables. Generally, we don't really run into anything unexpected unless it's something to do with the overall power grid. There have been some cases where loss in local power uh, may create some issues for us, but really a lot of that's not so much related to operation of the systems, but really the impact that that would have on providing our internal customers with access to data. Well, that's it for Flavor University Podcast. I'm Corey Doucette. I'd like to thank our special guest, Adam O'Leary, and thanks for listening. But until next time, the flavor of McCormick is the flavor of life. So go out and taste it. <laughs>